According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in Proverbs 16. We're looking at uh, the first part of the chapter here, verses 1 through 9. Verses 1 through 9. And we have a uh, section here that talks about God at work in and through us for His good pleasure. God uh, um, is just so faithful in, uh, in ways we don't understand. <laughs> when we are ignorant and clueless, God, uh, God is faithful. So, the plans of the heart belong to man. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. He's at work in our thinking. He's at work in our speaking. He's at work in our doing. Uh, verse 9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So from our plans to our words to our deeds, all of it is in God's hands, and He does what is pleasing in His sight. Before we begin this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to protect us and to lead us in truth, shall we pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day and we thank you for this week, Father, Thanksgiving week, and our nation chooses to uh, to set apart a time of thanksgiving. This is uh, for your glory, Father. We acknowledge it is your grace that provides for us day by day and moment by moment. And I thank you, Father, that uh, we still uh, are a people that, uh, for the most part, acknowledges you and your grace and your provision. So, Father, we thank you. Thank you for this morning and the time that we have in your word, the blessings we have to study the truth. And I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding so that we can search the scriptures and see if these things are so. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so continuing the trend from chapter 15, where we have far fewer antithetical parallelisms, far more of the, uh, far few, where we have the A statement, but on the other hand, the B statement. There's a lot more ands in this chapter. There's a lot more uh, a parallel, uh, synthetic parallel and synonymous parallelism that happens here. And uh, in verses 1 through 9, we are portraying the human, what I call the human divine tandem operations. All right? It's like tandem parachuting. When you're jumping out of a plane with somebody else uh, and you're sharing that uh, same parachute, then it's a tandem jump, a tandem operation. And that's what we have in the Christian way of life. We have a tandem operation. And uh, thankfully, the one we're jumping out of the plane with is God. <laughs> that We're jumping with the Lord. And so he's, he's with us. He walks with us. He's with us. He indwells us. And, uh, and really, the Christian walk is a human divine, that's human slash divine, tandem operation. And it happens as we walk in wisdom, the operation of God's wisdom in our life. And so uh, in this, we've seen that God is at work both in the thinking and the doing. Of course, that's Philippians 2.13. He shapes our thinking through His Word. He also freely shows Himself in our words and in our deeds. And so these are uh, marvelous applications. When the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, that uh, oftentimes you uh, you will be His instrument and you will say what you say and you, you kind of scratch your head afterwards and say, well, where did that come from? I didn't intend to say that. And you realize that God was at work in and through you. And uh, He brought out what He wanted to be brought out from uh, 
the memory banks of your soul. You forgot you put the word in there, but there it is. And we can appreciate that. Uh, but he does. He shapes our thinking through his word, and then he freely shows himself in our words and in our deeds. And when God's at work, and you see his power, and you see his plan, and then you realize, wow, thank you, Lord. Thank you that your ways are not our ways, nor your thoughts our thoughts. And uh, and he's just so faithful. We, of course, want to stay in fellowship for this to happen. And if you're carnal, it's not going to happen. And that's why we see uh, all uh, in verse 2, the need to be cleansed. Uh, because if we just search ourselves, that's not good enough. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. We look ourselves over and we get impressed. We say, yeah, I'm okay. I'm good with this. And then uh, we ask God to look us over and he shows us, well, wait a minute, this is not pleasing in my sight. So we want to invite him to do the searching. Self-reflection is often insufficient. It is much better to call him a Lord to do the searching. And you ask him, search me, try me, see if there is any evil way within me so that we can get rid of it. We want no part of it. Got to stay in fellowship. And then we also have to understand his purpose. Committing our actions to the Lord is the blessing of embracing the divine human tandem. That's verse 3. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Everything that we do is yours, Lord. Everything that we do, every Bible class we teach, everything we do in ministry, everything we do in our marriage and our family, it's yours, Lord. I'm committing it to you. If you don't want it done, then overrule. Don't let it get done. And if you want something else instead of what I think I'm doing, then, then change it. Get it. Make it happen. And uh, we commit our actions to the Lord. That means I'm embracing this divine tandem. I'm not pushing it away. I'm not insisting on my will. I think all too often the, uh, when believers don't embrace the human divine tandem, what that means is they want to kind of push God off to the side and do their own thing. And then, uh, and then they get very impressed with what they're doing and uh, it's kind of discouraging them when God's not as impressed as we're impressed with, with what we're doing. Think about that crowd that's shouting, Lord, Lord, on that day, we did this for you, we did this for you, we did this for you. We cast out demons, we healed, we did all this stuff. Notice it's Pentecostal kind of stuff. And uh, they say, we did this, we did this, we did this for you. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. And he throws them into the lake of fire. Very religious people getting thrown in the lake of fire there. No, we want to embrace the human divine tandem. We want to embrace and recognize that all that we do is the grace of God. When functioning in uh, this human divine tandem, it's important to keep focused on the purpose and plan of God for everything He calls upon us to do. If you're confused about the plan of God, then study it some more, pray over it some more, review it. Uh, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose. The purpose of God is, is critical. If all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, don't you want to know what His purpose is? Don't you want to make sure that you're in the plan of God, that you're pursuing His purposes? Uh, you can't be confused on any dispensational distinctions. You can't be confused on, on, uh, on anything because He's given it to us here in His Word. Even the wicked for the day of evil. God has a purpose even for the wicked, even for the snakes, for the adversaries. He's got a purpose and he accomplishes his good pleasure. And then there's pride. What a, what a roadblock to the human divine tandem. Uh, I tell you, pride is the essence of, of Satan's rebellion against God. It is the prime attitudinal precursor to all human sin. If you get wrapped up in things of pride, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. 
that pride is just devastating to the human divine tandem. And it uh, just, God doesn't honor it. He's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And uh, particularly when you're going to pervert pride into, into something ugly. And so there it is there. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. He will ultimately do so when every knee bends and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, He's able to humble, so what happens when He doesn't? What happens when He chooses not to humble? Well, I think He does that when He gives somebody over, when He says, here you go, and He gives them over to the lust of their mind, and He gives them over to the, to the depraved heart and the giving over, because it's the Word of God that does the transformation. Someone that's not humble for the Word of God isn't going to receive it. And uh, I think we understand that for what it is as well. All right, well that gets us up to date and current with what we've covered in recent classes. Um, Now we're ready for verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. All right, verse 6. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. We have a marvelous description here of Old Testament salvation and a wonderful recognition here of grace and truth which comes through Jesus Christ and the blessings we have to have our iniquity atoned for by chesed, loving kindness, and truth, mf, iniquity is atoned for. There's step one. You've got to start with that. If you don't get saved, forget about anything else. And then by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. And so both of these aspects, we want to understand them for what they are. Atonement is the means to many ends, but it is not an end unto itself. Atonement is the means to many ends, but it is not an end unto itself. In other words, if you limit yourself to being content to be saved, well, that's not the end, that's not the purpose. Uh, saving you was a part of a larger purpose. Saving you was a part of the good works prepared beforehand so that you could walk in them. That we are created in Christ Jesus for those good works. It is not the end unto itself. All right, We want to be clear on that. Receiving positional justification. Believers are expected to walk in experiential sanctification. Huge difference. And don't confuse those. I'm going to take some time this morning to make sure we're solid on this. Because just getting saved is not the goal. There's so much more past that. Things that accompany salvation. Things so much past that. The purpose for why He saved us. And, uh, and so we're happy to be saved. We're happy to have that positional justification. Don't get me wrong. I mean, here we are. And so we have a position in Christ. We are justified. We are made righteous. That's a gift of His grace at the moment we believe in Christ for eternal life. And so we have that positional justification that God no longer looks at any of us and says, there's a sinner that needs to go to hell. He looks at us and He sees His Son, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so that's our position in Christ. We are justified. We are declared to be righteous. Now that that's done and accomplished, we proceed forward in a Christian walk. And that's where the experience comes in. That makes it experiential. And it's a sanctification. It is a set-apart walk. It is a walk for God's purpose and God's glory. It is a walk in God's holiness. In a walk in, um, in fact, uh, talking to a, an unbeliever the other night, and he, uh, he didn't understand the concept of purity. He says, what's this purity you're talking about? What's purity anyway? And it just 
you know, blows my mind that there's people that don't know what purity is. Well, let me tell you, okay, this is, <laughs> it's, it's connected to holiness and godliness. It's what we're called to be in, in our character and in, uh, in Christ as the scripture molds us. See, well, if you're not saved and you don't have a Bible and you don't pay attention to the righteousness of God, well, then maybe, yeah, maybe purity is, a, is, a, you know, the only thing you think about is is water purifiers, and you think about pure water versus uh, stagnant water. You think about contamination in uh, in uh, and this guy's a big environmentalist, so I mean, I imagine he likes water purity in Barton Creek or wherever. But the idea of personal purity for you and me and our character and our integrity and our Christian walk, I might as well have been speaking Swahili. Uh, as far as that goes. Well, that's what it's about though, that walk in experiential sanctification. And uh, and so we recognize it. Now here in verse 6, it's the A part and the B part of the poetry, and it's not antithetical, it's synthetic. And in other words, it builds what the previous statement was about. So by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. That's getting saved, having atonement, and it's it's the grace and truth of Jesus Christ that saves us. And then it goes on past that, and by the fear of the Lord one keeps away from evil. That's a follow-up. That's an extension of the first half of the poetry, right? You can't get saved by just staying away from evil and turning over a new leaf and, and you know, uh, any kind of a self-righteous moral reform isn't going to save you. The B part extends from the A part and it's not possible without the A part of the verse. Does that make sense? As long as we're clear on that. So that positional justification comes first. And so we can turn to the New Testament and see this where it gets laid out in, uh, in very clear terms. Colossians chapter 1 makes it very clear. Colossians chapter 1. <coughs> And uh, he's writing to a church he'd never been to before, but he calls them uh, the saints, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And so he's writing to saints. He is writing to people who are saved, who have the positional justification already. But now his prayers for them moving onward is the extension of their justification that would be their positional sanctification. And and I can skip down now to verse 10, but you'll just notice in the meantime, uh, as it says in verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So he knows they're saved. They have faith. And uh, they're expressing that faith and their love for, uh, for fellow believers. All right. And then when he talks about how they've grown, how they've learned the Word of God, Epaphras was one of their teachers. Uh, Paul knows Epaphras. He's, he's never been to Colossae. He doesn't know most of these people, but he knows Epaphras. And Epaphras is the one that related their, their uh, history to Paul. It says in verse 8, he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So that's how Paul learned about these guys. So For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that, and here's the experience, here's the sanctification, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
So we have a life whereby we're saved, we're justified, and now we're going to live that out in the experience, the experiential sanctification of the Christian walk. Strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And uh, so there you have it. And what, what a appropriate Thanksgiving Day message too with respect to giving thanks. And I don't know how unbelievers give thanks. Who do they, who do they give thanks to? How do, you, how do you thank God if you're an atheist or if you don't believe in God? Or uh, I mean, Thanksgiving, you've got to give the thanks to somebody, not just you know fate or the random chance of the universe or something. You've got to give thanks. And Thanksgiving, I posted this on Facebook this morning, Thanksgiving is you cannot separate it from the grace of God. Eucharistia is the word for thanksgiving, and charis is the core part of that. The grace of God is the core of all of our thanksgiving. And uh, if you're appropriately thankful in a biblical way, that will always be the case. So receiving positional justification, believers are then expected to walk in experiential sanctification. But it's not automatic. It doesn't always happen. There are tons of people who get saved and then they never grow, they never walk, they never learn what it's about, uh, that they think that, well, just that's enough. Getting saved is enough. I'm not going to go to hell now, so I'm good. And, and they just kind of let it go at that. And it's heartbreaking to have born-again people that are not disciples of the Word of God, that are not being transformed by truth. And so that's why Paul's praying. Why is he praying so hard if this is an automatic? <laughs> okay? And I've had people tell me, oh, it's automatic, and you'll always grow. If you're truly saved, you'll always grow. Well, it says who? Why? If you're not living in the Word of God, how can you grow? And uh, it's not automatic. If it's automatic, why is Paul wasting his time praying for all this stuff? If it's automatic, if it all happens anyway, why pray for it? No, he's praying fervently that they will walk this way. Over to uh, chapter 2, I think uh, another glimpse of this in verse 6. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's positional justification, as you have received Christ Jesus our Lord, so walk in Him. There's experiential sanctification. you got both of them in the same verse. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And uh, both sides of the equation there, right there in the same verse. And, and answer the question yourself, well how was that? <laughs> how did I receive Christ? I believe it was by grace through faith. How about that? So how am I going to walk? By grace through faith. I'm going to continue to walk in grace. I'm going to continue to walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, the, same, uh, the same process that got me saved is the same process that's going to keep me sanctified. See? And it's, it's really as simple as that. Ephesians 4.1 Ephesians 4.1 Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you so if this is an automatic, again, there's a lot of begging, there's a lot of imploring, there's a lot of praying. <laughs> it's not automatic. Stress that enough. It's not automatic. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You've been called, you're saved, now there's a walk in front of you. And, uh, and Paul is just imploring, begging, pleading, praying that uh, people who should be in the Word of God are in the Word of God and are living it out appropriately. Now the whole idea of grace and truth 
uh, it's called loving kindness and truth. Chesed is the Hebrew term. Emeth is the, is the Hebrew term for truth. To me, I, I love going to John chapter 1 and seeing this. Seeing the uh, contrast from Moses to Jesus. Seeing the, the, uh, the blessings of how in the Old Testament they functioned in shadows and now it's given way to the substance that is Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So John chapter 1, verse 14, verse 17, I'll back up just a little bit, um, because Jesus comes, He's the light of the world, the light's shining in the darkness, and there were a lot of witnesses preparing the way for the coming of the light, such as John. Uh, there came a man sent from God whose name was John, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. And he was the last, the greatest of all the witnesses that preceded. And there were, there were prophets and there were scriptures and there were um, shadow rituals, there were Levitical sacrifices, uh, the tabernacle we learned about Sunday night. There were all these things given in the Old Testament that were all pointing to the coming of the Christ. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. So we're not saying that they were false lights. Moses was a true light. He wasn't false, but he was giving a shadow. He was giving an anticipation. Jesus is the substance. He was in the world. The world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Old Testament salvation is the same as New Testament salvation, is faith in Christ. And we just look back to the Christ who died on the cross and rose again. They were looking forward to the Christ who was coming. But the, but the faith is always in Christ unto eternal life, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's always been the case. You must be born again. Jesus told Nicodemus that. It's always been the case. Old Testament, New Testament alike. Unbelievers in Adam need to be born again. And, and this is what we're looking at. All right, so verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Here's our terms. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. It's like the chesed and the emeth from Proverbs 16, 6. That by grace and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And so here he is, Jesus Christ, coming from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's coming to provide atonement. And uh, John testified about him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. There was grace in the Old Testament, but boy howdy, here in the church age, what do we have? Grace upon grace. We have abundant grace, as Jesus said. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So does that mean that the law didn't have any grace? The law didn't have any truth? Of course not. It had grace, it had truth. But they were shadows, they were anticipations, they were pictures so that you could you know, learn under the law, observe your own sinfulness, observe your need for a Redeemer. The law, the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. 
This is the joy we have in Christ, that we have the full understanding of the Father, the blessing of Jesus Christ to reveal the Father in this, in this way. All right. So we have, a, I think, a, a wonderful, I'm going to add this to my toolbox of Old Testament salvation passages, passages that uh, could easily be viewed on an on a evangelistic basis from the standpoint of an Old Testament. I always try to imagine if I was a, a Jewish person with a, you know, a wife and Jewish kids, uh, how would I give them the gospel just without a New Testament, you know, without John 3.16 or without Ephesians 2, 8, 9 or without Acts 16.31? I mean, why is it that so many of my favorite go-to gospel passages are all in the New Testament? Well, let's, let's grab some Old Testament passages as well and, and realize that there's a bunch, there's a whole lot available that were used for all those years. All right, so loving kindness and truth. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. That fear of the Lord, we've seen it again and again throughout Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom. It's that attitudinal response whereby we're humble before truth. We fear God, we, we embrace His truth, we accept what He says. And this is uh, how the tandem operation of God's wisdom keeps us from, uh, from stumbling. All right, then verse 7, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now here is a really an, an interesting verse. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, which they should be, right? We want to be walking with him. We want to be living the word of God. We want to be um, transformed and, and everything that we think, say, and do. We want to be pleasing to the Lord. There's a benefit. There's a benefit to us in terms of our blessing. But then there's, uh, shall we say, contingency, or not contingency, but there's, there's uh, collateral damage, if you will. There's blessing by association. There's others that also benefit by having a pleasing walk before the Lord. Even, uh, among your family, among your friends, and even among your enemies, there can be an impact in the testimony of your life. Say, well, I don't have any enemies. Well, we'll, we'll give you some. How about that? <laughs> All right. And here's the point. Divine favor. Divine favor. This is what happens. It's called grace. It's called the blessings by association. Divine favor has human effects among friends, disinterested parties, and even enemies. Divine favor, that's the blessing by association. This is when you're pleasing to the Lord and there is then a, an effect here on earth. Divine favor has human effects among friends, disinterested parties, and even enemies. And so I'll give you an example in each of these categories. Of course, Proverbs is talking mostly about the enemies here in verse 7. He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. But it's not only limited to enemies, because that word even is in there. It makes even his enemies. So that includes friends, you know, neutral parties, disinterested parties, people that are neither friends or enemies, and even enemies. That's comprehensive. That's a, that's a statement of, of totality there. The benefits of what happens when a believer is pleasing in God's sight. All right? And so it's, uh, it's, it's noteworthy. It's observable. And even an unbeliever who does not have the capacity to understand truth, to understand what it is he's seeing, he knows he's seeing something that's different. He knows he's seeing something that's a power that he can't explain, that he, that he doesn't have, that he doesn't have available to him. 
but he recognizes that there's something happening and it's happening in your life. And that, that becomes a witness. That becomes a testimony right there. But we'll start with the friends. We'll start with abiding in the Word of God and the friends that we can have together. 1 John chapter 3. And, and there's other places we can go to to find a concept like this, but 1 John 3, 18 through 24 is a good uh, section here. Because we're finding the, um, the effects. We're finding the um, you know, cause and effect. We're finding the, the manifestation of what, of what happens if I have a pleasing life, right? Because that too, uh, we say, well, isn't that, isn't that enough? Isn't that the end? Or is it a means to additional ends? Are there other things that happen as, uh, as I'm trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord, okay? So as it says in, in 1 John 3, 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And so we have love, we love God, we love His Word, we love one another, and beyond the internal, the attitude and the, and the, the uh, internal processes, there are externals, there are effects, there are things that happen in this world, the things that we do, such as, uh, even if I backed up a little bit, there's things in verse 17 there about uh, you know, blessing your brother, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So if, if, you, if you say you have love, but there's never any external application, do you really have love? I mean, seriously? How much do you have if it never gets expressed? All right. And so this talks about now loving with a deed and truth. Now we will know by this that we are of the truth and we will assure our heart before him. So we have the, the benefit here, assuring our heart before Him. This is our pleasing in God's sight, right? From Proverbs 16, 7. Pleasing in God's sight. And so our heart is assured. I know that I'm, I'm in His will. I'm, I'm doing what He wants me to do. I'm, I'm functioning in the human divine tandem. Uh, I'm open to His rebuke and correction. And so... Um, we are of the truth and our heart is assured before Him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And so we just leave it with Him. Say, all right, Father, am I pleasing in your sight or am I not pleasing in your sight? Is there something that needs to be adjusted? Condemn that. Show me that. And then, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So this goes well with what we were seeing in the, in the earlier verse there in Proverbs 16, whereby we're not just examining ourselves, we're asking Him to examine us. We're asking Him to show us if there's any hurtful way within us. And then it goes on, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. And so now we're engaged in our prayer life and we're engaged with others and we have fellowship with our brothers and sisters in the flock. We ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. So we're pleasing in His sight. We're loving one another. There's a benefit to this. And uh, among friends, among our church family, this just gets celebrated. This gets, uh, uh, there's, there's a, a multitude of the Thanksgiving prayers that can be offered. And I think it's uh, not accidental that all of this is, is, um, is, is composed in the first person plural. This whole section here is centered on we, what we're doing, what we are uh, praying for, what we are asking for. 
stressing the, uh, the collective nature of the body of Christ. Alright, so we keep His commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. So we get to uh, live this out. We get to love one another and do these things and, and it just becomes a blessing. And it's, it's easy to describe among friends but even among enemies, wow, how does that work? <laughs> even among enemies there is uh, a benefit in the attitude. There is something that can, that can, touch, uh, can touch a heart. Grab the last verse here is verse 24. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. So it's a mutual abiding. We abide in God, God abides in us. And we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. All right? It's not a spirit of confusion. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God the Holy Spirit abiding in us in uh, the application there. All right, so loving one another. And, and I tell you, I don't know if um, I'm, not, I'm not done First John on a verse-by-verse basis, but I tell you that the, the power of the Holy Spirit as we're in fellowship, the power of, of being cleansed, is the only way to have love one for another. <laughs> humanity won't do it. Humanity will, will get offended. Humanity will, will, uh, will, uh, will fall short. Um, no, it's got to come from uh, the Holy Spirit. It's got to come from God being at work. All right, Genesis 39. Uh, what if it's not a friend? What if it's a disinterested party? Someone that's neither a friend or an enemy. Somebody that's just, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a stranger. Or... Um, Let's go to Genesis 39. We'll see the benefit that happens here. 19 through 23. Of course we know the context for Genesis 39 is uh, Joseph. His brothers hated him, sold him off into slavery. He gets sent down to Egypt. And um, and then uh, his master's wife starts well, the ugliness of that, and he keeps his integrity, and he uh, gets thrown in jail for it. And so everything Joseph does, he serves the Lord, and then he has terrible consequences with uh, slavery and now jail. And uh, you would think that uh, if, if Joseph wasn't so, had such a fear of the Lord and a love for, for the Lord, that at some point he would just you know despair and give up and say, I'm, I'm tired of doing the right thing every time and always getting, you know, getting hurt. And uh, But no, he continues, he continues to please God, he continues to do these things. And so, um, let's see, this is the context here. So he's accused of the rape and then he's uh, thrown into um, jail. So verse 19, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail the place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was uh, there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. And so this is what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, the divine favor that then gets extended. It has effects beyond just you. So yeah, you're a believer and you're in the Bible and you're learning and you're growing and God's pleased with you. That's great. But that's internal. That's internal to you. That's internal to your soul and spirit. That's that's, that's your blessing, but it has effects beyond you. That's the point. It has effects beyond you. And I like this phrase, 
the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And so we call this blessing by association. And there's a flip side of that too, by the way. It's called cursing by association, whereby if you're out of the will of God, you can damage your, your, your marriage, your family, your church, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the corollary. We've got to avoid that. But we want to embrace the blessing by association. And so he finds favor. Gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. So God is the source. He's the origin of all grace. He is the origin and the source of that grace. But it goes through Joseph and it reaches the chief jailer. See? Does that make sense? You could think of it as in the sense of a, you know, it's like a, a fragrant aroma. It's like a sweet-smelling savor. It's like uh, the aroma of life to life and the aroma of death to death. And these are the things that happen. And it's almost, but it's in the spiritual realm. It's in the spiritual realm. So it's not like, you know, sight, seeing, smell, touch, taste, you know. Uh, but it's a, it is a, an awareness of God's grace coming through you that other people are aware of. And this is what we see here. And so gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. It's like, you know, like a perfume. Like a, what does that smell? Okay. Oh, it must be grace. <laughs> here is a grace believer, you know, and, and it's, it's beautiful. If you have the senses to smell it, it's beautiful. And that's uh, it's a neat study. So um, the Lord was with Joseph. And then it says, the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail. Now, some people would make this an illustration of an enemy and make this uh, kind of a parallel text to, to, uh, to Proverbs 16, 7, where it makes even the enemies to be at peace with him. I don't know that the jailer was necessarily an enemy, uh, more so than just simply a guy doing his job. He's, he runs the jail and here's an inmate. So it's not really an enemy uh, attitude. Um, but I would just call it a, a disinterested party, someone that's neither a friend nor an enemy, uh, but someone that clearly is impacted by the grace that's coming through you. And so he committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he, he was responsible for it. And the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. And sometimes, this is really kind of the explanation for why an enemy would, uh, would be at peace is because the enemy is at least satanically selfish enough to realize, wow, this is a good guy to have around. <laughs> this is a good guy to have on my work crew. This is a good guy to have on my team, a good guy to have in my company. That even though you know I don't fear God or believe in God or whatever, this guy does. And so he's honest, he's moral, he's ethical, he's not going to cheat me in business. Uh, he's, uh, this is a good guy I want to have uh, working for me as an employee. And so even an enemy who, like I say, an unbeliever, even somebody that has no respect for the Bible can still appreciate you as a Christian, you and me as Christians, because we do have a respect for the Bible. And even a whole culture, a whole society will benefit the more people that live based on biblical norms and standards. So uh, the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. And you just see that and go, wow, that, there's, there's blessing here. I want to be a part of that. <laughs> or there's blessing here. I want to keep it close to me. And uh, whatever, whatever else can rub off. You, know. you ever have people say, can you pray for me? 
and you wonder, why? <laughs> I already do pray for you because you're not saved. You need to get saved. That's why I'm praying for you. But what did you have in mind? Well, you know, and this other thing is happening and this other thing is happening and I just hope you would pray. Well, why do you want me to pray? You don't believe there is a God. Why do you want me to pray? And, and you know, did that ever happen? It amuses me when that happens. I, a lot of things amuse me. But then, uh, you know, they say these things. They go, okay, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for what you're asking, but I'm going to pray for more than that. I'm going to pray that you get saved and understand what prayer really is for. And uh, that's the, uh, the real aspect on that. Even enemies, even enemies. And there's some different examples here. Uh, Genesis, let's stay in Genesis 26. And uh, Isaac, this is Isaac's main chapter here. And uh, Abimelech, the Philistine king at Gerar. And it starts off, the first part of the chapter is kind of ugly because it's a repeat of Abraham's sin about, oh, she's my sister. And Isaac does the same dumb thing that, that Abraham did, and and uh, which was a total lie because at least Sarah was Abraham's half-sister with, with Isaac and Rebekah. It's not even that. So it's more than a half-lie. It's a total lie. And then um, anyway, so Abimelech exposes it and they come clean on this and then they separate and um, verse 12 Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold and the Lord blessed him wow and uh, the man became rich continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy for he had possessions and flocks and herds and a great household so that the Philistines envied him and we're going to see this is going to start to spark problems so uh, all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. <laughs> okay, Enemies. This is, this is rough. And so all the hostility and the things, the harmful things that are done to uh, you know, harass and intimidate and, and uh, convince Isaac that he should probably just be somewhere else. He, uh, if it's going to be this hostile, you know, why would you want to be around here? So, then Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And so what does he do? It's time to dig more wells. So Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham for the Philistines had stocked them up. And so, I mean, yeah, you find yourself redoing it and redoing it and redoing it because you're serving the Lord. You're just cheerful. The enemy is doing all kinds of ugly things and you just keep doing what you're doing. So when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, the water is ours. So he named the well Esek because they contended with him. And they dug another well, quarreled over it too, so he named it Sitna. He moved away from there and dug another well. And so what does he do? Hostility, enemies, he just keeps doing what he's doing. Keeps his eyes on the Lord, stays faithful. And uh, this one's named as Rehoboth. Rehoboth. For he said, at last, the Lord has made room for us and we will be fruitful in the land. So he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. And this is interesting to me. Because Isaac has stayed faithful through conflict after conflict after conflict. But he just stays faithful. He keeps moving on. He, He just 
keeps himself in the hands of the Lord, and here comes the confirmation that uh, the Abrahamic covenant is confirmed to Isaac right here. I'm the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there, called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. <laughs> does a lot of that. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor, uh, Ahuzath, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? And we're going to see Proverbs 16.7 unfold right here in front of us. How even an enemy will be brought to peace because you are pleasing in the sight of the Lord. may not happen immediately. may happen down the road. It may take four or five or six wells and moving from place to place to place. But eventually, even the hardest of hearts will stop and say, there's something different here. So why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let, us, let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good. Yeah, right. And have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Now isn't that something? Are they being truthful here? I think they're lying through their teeth. And yet, uh, uh, what does Isaac do? He made them a feast and they ate and they drank. So he's, he, he's going to let it go. The past is the past. They want to be at peace now. Okay, you want to be at peace now? So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So yeah, the past was ugly. But they want to proceed forward on a peaceful basis. In the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths. Then Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. And I think it's interesting because now he's the heir of the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you I will curse. And now that that covenant is confirmed to Isaac, he's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And uh, these Philistines, they don't want to be on that cursing side of things now that the covenant is firmly uh, assigned to Isaac. And so... uh, here it is. All right. So it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug, and they said, We have found water. They called it, so he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. All right. And well of the oath, or well of seven, and different ways you can understand it. I like well of the oath because they exchanged oaths on this occasion. So even your enemies can, uh, can be blessed in the blessing by association. They can recognize God's hand of favor upon you and they can uh, want to put themselves in a position of peace because of that. 2 Corinthians 20 is another example. 2 Corinthians, not Corinthians, Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. If you find a chapter 20 in 2 Corinthians, let me know. <laughs> My 2 Corinthians stops at 13 chapters, but all right, Second Chronicles chapter 20. And Jehoshaphat, what a great name. I wonder if the Lord would ever give Sharon and I another son so I can name him Jehoshaphat. How cool would that be? Um, but Jehoshaphat was a good king. He was righteous. He followed after the example of David for the most part. And... Um, 
what's being described here in verses 29 and 30. Um, let's see, without reading the whole chapter on this. Um, so verse 26, on the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Baraka, for, they, uh, for there they blessed the Lord. Baraka means blessing. And therefore they have named that place the valley of Baraka until today. Every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. So God's at work, the victory is theirs on this day. And they came to Jerusalem with harps, lyres, and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of all the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. I mean, which side do you want to be on? If God is here with the Jewish people, you're going to stand against that? So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. And uh, that's uh, that's the provision. So, human effects, divine favor that is blessing by association has human effects among friends, disinterested parties, and even enemies. Verse 8. We have the wealth-poverty spectrum, which we've seen before. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. All right, so the wealth-poverty spectrum. That is how wealthy you are, how poor you are, or somewhere in between, right? It's a spectrum. And it is juxtaposed. That means it's put up here for one consideration, and then there's another consideration to put side by side with it, okay? Because if you don't have that, if you don't have God's standard of righteousness side by side with, with wealth, it, it, then all you are is worldly in your, in your approach. And then all you have is just the wealth approach of this world, which is more is better. Okay, I want to be rich, I don't want to be poor. And uh, rich is always good, poor is always bad. And uh, without the standard of God's uh, righteousness to put in juxtaposition, to put them side by side, then uh, I'm just at the at the mercy of my carnality. I'm at the mercy of this world system and and how everything operates. So great income is better than a little income. All things being equal, unless the price for such income is wickedness. Those are the circumstances then where you'd stop and say, "Uh, no, 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 not 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 for that." And so uh, this is when you stop and you realize, no, I'd rather be poor than rich if that's what it takes, if that's the, the, the cost, if I have to deny my Lord, if I have to uh, compromise biblical norms and standards, then I'm not going to do it. And uh, does it cost me financially? Well, okay, it costs me financially, but I'm going to stay righteous in the sight of God. And that's uh, the issue here. We've talked about this before, we've seen uh, on previous occasions, this is the kind of proverb that has the better than the better than contrast. And so this is good. This is gooder, right? More good, better than good. And so it, it contrasts these things. And it doesn't mean that it's always the case, but in this context it is. Okay? So better. I think we had it in an earlier chapter where we were talking about meat and vegetables, right? We were talking about the, and I was even 
uh, joking uh, related to vegetarians and why vegetarians are inferior to carnivores. Okay, and I had some fun with it and whatever, made some whatever jokes. Uh, but it's just the Bible. I'm saying it's just the Bible that unless uh, you know you have to compromise righteousness, there's no reason to be a vegetarian. But if you that that was the the previous use of the better than illustration it had to do with meat and vegetables. This one here has to do with with uh, income. Do you want great income or do you want meager income? See, when you take a new job and the boss asks, you know, what do you want? You know, do you want should I pay you twenty thousand a year? Or should I pay you a hundred thousand a year? And you scratch your head and say, well, um, <laughs> seriously, do I have a choice on this? You know, well, obviously more income is better. Who wouldn't think that? Until you juxtapose it with the righteousness of God and, and you learn that, wait a minute, um, this injustice, this, that I, have to, I have to defy the, the sovereignty of God, I've got to defy the righteousness of God and, and, and live uh, outside of His standards of justice? No, no thank you. I'll get by, I'll get by with, le- with less because uh, that's the contrast. So great income is better than little income in most circumstances, all other things being equal, unless the price for such income is wickedness. All right. And so this uh, we've seen before as well in Proverbs 15, 16 is what we're talking about, 16 and 17 here. Remember this from a chapter ago? You say, no, I don't remember because it took us 100 years to go through chapter 15 and I wasn't even born yet when you were in Proverbs 15. It says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. So it's a better than statement. And uh, little is better than treasure if it comes at a, at a price uh, of, uh, of turmoil. We want to have the fear of the Lord. And then in verse 17, better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. So the contrast of love and hatred, that, that's a spectrum that gets juxtaposed. And, uh, and you realize that uh, you know under normal circumstances the, the meat is better than the vegetables, but if, uh, if it means no love and, uh, and, and nothing but hatred, well then okay, give me the vegetables because uh, I don't want to have the, I don't want to have the hatred uh, with, the, with the fat knocks. Okay, so there's the issue there. If you are a vegetarian and I offended you in that chapter, then I apologize. But it's the scripture, so there you have it. Um, chapter 28 is going to come back again. You're going to compromise doctrine? No, don't compromise doctrine. Live the truth. Proverbs 28 and verse 6. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. Again, physical, uh, earthly wealth is placed on a spectrum from poor to rich, and it's juxtaposed with God's standard of righteousness where we have uh, integrity as opposed to crooked, uh, crookedity, is that a word? <laughs> integrity and non-integrity, being crooked, being straight or being crooked is the contrast there. Of course, uh, we also looked at Psalm 37 and 1 Timothy 6. These are kind of my go-to passages anytime this subject comes up. 
Psalm 37, 16. The Psalm of David. And better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. All right. We watching the camera? Was that a vehicle that just came in? All right. That's Psalm 37, 16. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. 1 Timothy chapter 6 in the New Testament. Hmm. All right. Verse 3 says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, this is a problem in a local church, if you have somebody that's advocating a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, with a doctrine conforming to godliness. He is conceited and understands nothing, and yet he'll be the biggest know-it-all you'll ever meet, but he thinks he knows it all. Scripture says he knows nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction. And when hostility manifests itself, that's a clue. That tells you there's a spirit at work here and and just get your armor up and, and grab your sword of the spirit and have at it. So there it is. But godliness, and and notice, Constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And when you're that confused in your doctrine, you're going to come to all kinds of confusing conclusions, including this one. God wants me to be rich. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. You can be the most profitable person out there and it, you know, irrespective of your of your bank account you have the contentment from the word of god as you become wealthy in in doctrine we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either if we have food and covering with these we shall be content but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and they end up compromising There's a price to be paid and the devil will always put that bargain in front of you and when you take the devil's bargain look out. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So we need to flee from these things. We've got to recognize these things. We recognize that there's wealth. Get down to verse uh, 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Money is a tool. It is not the basis of your faith. But fix your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, 
to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. This is the application there. All right, so the slide says 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 9. You should also add 17 through 19 to that, to that slide as well. 17 through 19. All right, I am one minute over. Forgive my one minute over. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. I pray that you would minister your truth to our souls, that we would learn it, that we would digest it, that, Father, we would live it out as an expression of your truth that pleases you, that has effects beyond ourselves personally, but blesses our family, our uh, friends, even our enemies, Father. Uh, Cause them to be blessed by association with our walk that's pleasing in your sight. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.